Our reading today is from Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen, and uh, good morning, great to be back with you. We've been out for uh, a number of weeks and happy to be back and missed you all and uh, excited to see what God is going to do in the second half of our year together. This morning, as you can see, we're looking at the power of Jesus in the book of Acts and we'll sort of bring this first section of the book to a close today and next week begin a four-week look at the last section of the book of Acts called the trial of your life. We'll be looking at the, the, the many and incredible trials in the life of the Apostle Paul and see if we can discover what he discovered and see if what he discovered can't make actually a difference in our lives, in our trials as well. So the trial of your life that begins next week. Hope to have you back here with us. Uh, This morning, as you can see, we're in Acts chapter 17 and really outside of mm, the Sermon on the Mount, number one, and uh, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. There's really no more famous sermon in the Bible than this one right here we're looking at today. And it's not just because of the the content. It's really because of the, the context of where this takes place. We're here, as you can see, in a place called Mars Hill in the ancient city of Athens, which was the cultural epicenter of the cultural epicenter of the day. Athens was London, uh, New York, Paris, 
and Austin, Texas, all rolled into one. You know, if you could make it there, right, you could make it anywhere. And so into the very place once roamed and walked and talked by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, now comes Paul the Apostle, Paul the Radical, Paul the Christian missionary. And he's got a message of his own for those thinkers of their day, but as we're going to see, this story kind of ends in a strange way. It doesn't go how Paul probably would have planned, because what he preaches here causes a kind of reaction in the hearts of his hearers. And my goal this morning is to preach this in such a way to communicate the, the essence of Paul's message in a way that perhaps will provoke the same reaction in us as well. Here's my question. What did Paul preach then? That still resonates today. Here we go. Paul touches on three things that produce a fourth. Paul touches on culture, on creation, on the cross, which ultimately produce a crisis. And we'll get to that, but let's go here and number one and look at the culture that Paul is speaking to. Paul knows he's talking to a culture a lot like ours, one full of idols and ideas where people like to sit around and talk about their stuff all day long. That's what the scripture tells us. So Paul uh, here, if you know this, he doesn't so much preach here at this group as he demonstrates understanding of who he's talking to and he's talking to two groups of people. As you can see here in verse 18, it says there's a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. They brought him into the, basically the main debate hall and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And who are these people? Well, forgive me for overgeneralizing just a bit, but I want to suggest to you that these two main groups, these dominant philosophical groups in Paul's day, really are the same two groups, dominant groups, in our culture today as well. First were the Stoics. The Stoics were, by and large, the conservatives of the day, the moralists of the day. They believed there was a right way and a wrong way to live. And your job as a citizen was to conform your life with the right way to live. You ought to do your duty. To the gods and to country, to the state, you never let them see you sweat. You keep a stiff upper lip. And above all, you keep calm and carry on. Those were the Stoics. On the other hand, the Epicureans were the relativists of our day. If if there were gods, well, surely all the gods would want, it would be for us just to be happy. Just to live our lives the way we want to live them. The Epicureans pursued pleasure, self-determination, and unrestrained sexual expression above all. So Paul here, essentially he wanders into an ongoing culture war of that day, into the the middle of the conservative uh, and liberal lion's den. And he says to all of them, essentially, he says, all y'all are wrong. You've all got it wrong. Your whole culture has missed it. And look at where he begins. He says to all of them, Stoics and Epicureans, he says, people of Athens... I see that in every way, you're very religious. Now, that's more appropriately the word superstitious. It means literally fearful of the gods. Paul is saying, look, I can see all y'all have got your own truth. You've got your own God. You've got your war God and sea God and sun God and heaven God. You've got your own God, your own truth. You Stoics have got your own truth. You Epicureans have got your own truth. And Paul is about to address them both to the, to the Stoics, to the moralists of his day, 
Paul's about to say to the one who, who believes that there's a right way and a wrong way for everybody to live, he's about to say, yes, you're right. There is absolute truth. But, oh, but absolute truth isn't cold or harsh. It's actually warm and personal because truth is a person. Not an idea, but it's a person. And if you want to know truth, you've got to know first a person of love, person of love, and his name is Jesus. But on the other hand, do the, do the relativists, the Epicureans, or the one who says, you know, oh, if there is a God, all he must want is just for us to be happy. Paul says, no, you must, actually, here's Paul's word, repent of all the ways you've lived how you've wanted to live. Because there is such a thing as truth, well, there's going to be limits even to sexual expression. Now, before we see how these two groups reacted to Paul here, I want to just flash forward just a moment in history and just ask, how did these two, two groups overall respond to the Christian message in history? Well, the Stoics, if you didn't know, in the end, were the ones who persecuted the church, the Christian gospel, mercilessly. The legendary Stoicist emperor, Marcus Aurelius, you may know, remember him from the movie Gladiator, right? Making a, you know, a cameo appearance. Marcus Aurelius hated the Christians. He persecuted, executed Christians in staggering numbers because he looked at them and they, he saw they accepted the weak, the morally broken, the flawed, the outcast, minorities, other people group, and he despised them because he thought they were the relativists of their day. You see, moralists throughout history, whether Jews, Romans, Ours today always react poorly to the gospel because the gospel of Jesus shatters, shatters any sense of confidence in the self as inherently good, any sense of a nation or state as being inherently good, or any people group as being inherently good. But flash forward, do you know who over time actually received the Christian message about sexual limits. It was, in the end, the Epicureans. Why? Because, here's why. If stoicism, moralism, can tend towards coldness and cruelty, Epicureanism tends towards loneliness and meaninglessness. Why? Because sex with everyone becomes sex with no one except the self. And because sex was designed by God for intimacy, for commitment over a lifetime, that they saw counterintuitively brought fulfillment while random, casual, unrestrained sexual expression they saw in the end produced loneliness and meaninglessness. See, Christians preached that Jesus really, that, excuse me, that sex was really a picture of the gospel when understood. They saw that it was through the giving of himself exclusively to us that Jesus Christ showed us what real love is. And therefore, we find love through the giving of ourselves exclusively, spirit, mind, body, to one other person for a lifetime. And they found that met the longing of their heart, not just the feeling of the flesh. It'll meet the longing of your heart as well. So when someone says today, hey, Christians, you know, uh, your views of sex are really regressive. Man, you got to get with the program, get modern, you know, uh, your views just privilege one group. No, no, no. You ought to say regressive. Well, hang on. What's regressive? is sex without limits because that's what the world had. That's what Epicureanism is until Christianity came and progressively moved the world ahead. To believe in Epicureanism really is to go back further to be more regressive in a sense than anything Christianity has ever brought to the table. 
So that's the culture Paul is speaking to here. Not so different, is it? Than ours today. That's the same culture. But where, though, does he really begin? Where does he begin to probe and find his way into their hearts? Well, out of all places, he begins with pointing to, number two, to creation itself. Creation itself. Look at what he says. He goes on to say, the God who made the world. Oh, this is radical for the Greeks. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Oh, again, here's what he's saying. Y'all got lots of gods you sacrifice to. Again, war god, sex god, fertility goddess. Paul's saying, no, no, no. But listen, your gods, they're just made by you and you know it. (laughs) They live in temples built by you, but this God isn't made by anybody. He didn't live in a building. They say, who is he? And Paul says, let me tell you. And he begins this way. He said, I even found in your culture, walking around your city, an an altar with this inscription. The altar said, this altar's for an unknown God. (laughs) What's this? Well, maybe this unknown God thing was just sort of some Athenian priest doing some CYB, you know, cover your butt. That's the church version of that phrase right there to make sure he got them all. You know, he appeased all the gods or maybe the legend about somebody named Epimenides was true. This legend had it, Epimenides to appease the gods. Let sheep loose all over the city. Aren't you glad he lived back then? And wherever the sheep lay down, Epimenides would sacrifice that sheep to the god of the altar the sheep lay down closest to. But when a sheep lay down in the middle of nowhere, Epimenides thought maybe that sheep is sensing an unknown God. And so he built an altar to an unknown God. But regardless of why that altar was there, Paul says, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I'm about to make crystal clear to you. He says that God, the one that's been unknown to you, is greater than all other gods. He made heaven and earth. He's not just more powerful than any other God because he made everything. He's far more loving than any other God because he gave you life and breath and you're made in his image and he cares for you. Now here's what he's doing and not doing by beginning there. He's not beginning with the Ten Commandments with a sense of guilt or shame like he would have with Jews. No, Paul is beginning with a premise. The same premise I'll begin with you today, no matter who you are or where you're from. And here's Paul's premise. Paul's premise is that every person who has ever lived deep down knows there's really one God who made everything, who has made us in his image. And Paul says, because you believe that, that's not only why you have the altar, but then he goes on to quote some of their, you know, Greek, you know, top 10 hits, uh, the playlist from the radio station. He quotes those two phrases there, in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring. Those were Greek pagan poets. And Paul says, look, 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 y'all, you've been thinking about this unknown God. You've been thinking about this one creator God. You've already been intuiting his existence, though you're far from him, you've already been moving toward him. Ooh. Now, how can this be? Oh, why is this true? I'll try to show you. Missionary couple by the name of Don and Carol Richardson were Canadian missionaries who in 1962, along with their seven-month-old baby, left Canada and moved to what was called Dutch New Guinea to work among the Sawi tribe there in that place. And the Sawi were known as cannibals 
and headhunters. And so they moved to the Dutch New Guinea and in their new home in the jungle, the Richardson set about learning the Sawi language, which was unbelievably complex. 19 tenses for every verb. Good, good on you, mate, you know, trying to learn that language. Now, Don became fluent and began to try to devise a way to communicate the gospel to them. But the cultural barriers to understanding seemed too great until one day when it got far worse. Don had become fluent, learned the language. When he first presented the person of Jesus to them, it backfired because as he found out in the eyes of the Sawi people, Judas, not Jesus, was the hero of the story. See, the Sawi people prized betrayal of one's enemies as the greatest virtue a person or a tribe could have. Judas was the hero. Jesus was just the dupe who was too dumb to not to see that his enemy was going to betray him and it moved too slowly to betray the one who would kill him. How do you speak to a culture that prizes betrayal above all else? Well, what Don Richardson discovered was the concept, the Sawi concept of the peace child, the peace child. Three tribal villages were in constant battle. The Richardsons were considering relocating away from there to to basically to be able to stay alive during the wars. And so to keep them there and to keep Carol's ability as a nurse in the village, the Sawi people came together with the other villages and they decided they would make peace with their hated enemies. How? Here's how. By exchanging baby boys, by giving their son to their enemy. The chief of each tribe would give his own baby son as a gift, as a sign of peace to his mortal enemy. And seeing this, Don Richardson wrote, he said, if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that person could be trusted. And so what Richardson saw was that the peace child, like Paul saw with the altar and with the poetry, was a sign of the unknown but true God working, going ahead of him into their midst. And Richardson began to tell them, this is exactly what the unknown God has done for you. He's given his only son to you as a sign. He loves you and desires peace with you. Oh, and many of the villagers became Christians. The Sawi language was translated into the New Testament. And nearly 2,500 patients' lives were saved, treated by Carol's nursing. See, Don Richardson saw the same thing Paul saw here, that deep down, everyone knows God exists. Deep down, you know there's a God who made everything and somehow, somewhere that's going to find itself into our culture. And Paul said this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And let me tell you, he's not far from you today either. So where does Paul say that we can find and where we can know the real God, the, maybe the unknown God? He said, number three, it's through the cross. Look at this. Paul goes on in the past. He said, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now Paul here, he's pointing to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the preeminent act of God in human history. Now he doesn't say the name Jesus here because he ends up being cut off 
by his listeners, and we'll see why, but he's heading there, and because he's heading there and saying this, Paul is preaching something, hear me, radically inclusive and exclusive at the same time. Paul is saying that the cross of Jesus Christ is for all people, all cultures, all times. That's how you find the one true God. Look at what Paul says here. Now he commands who? All people. Oh, not just some people, not just our people, not just those like us. No, but your roommate, your sibling, your parent, your child, your boss, your coworker, you today, everyone, all people to repent. See, this is radically inclusive. God will receive anyone from any culture. Oh, but it's radically exclusive because it excludes other faith systems, other gods, idols as being the way to find spiritual reality. Paul's saying there's one truth for the whole world and his name is Jesus. Now, yeah, I got one amen here. Now, let me show you why. Yeah, even if you disagree with that, maybe you're, I don't know about that. Even if you disagree with that, why you should want that to be true. Here's why. Every person in here today, you've got not just moral feelings, like you think some things are right and wrong probably, but you've got a sense of moral obligation. That is, that whether you think that where there's real wrong going on, where there's real tragedy and evil and injustice happening, that those things ought to be stopped somehow, somewhere, by someone. Now, if you say, well, I don't know about that, well, Let's see how you react if that CEO of your bank just, you know, rolls your bank account into his on a whim. Fund his next vacation. I don't think you'd like that. No, you've got a sense of moral obligation. Those things ought not be so. And if you agree with that, well, then you've just shattered the basis for moral, spiritual relativism. Here's why. Because if you say like, you know, anthropologists have said for decades now, all things are relative, no such thing as truth. Every culture has just got to find its own way because we've just evolved by accident. Truth is whatever a culture decides. What that really means is you haven't been out in the field and field tested that theory. Woman by the name, brilliant woman by the name of Carolyn Fleur Lobon. There's a mouthful for you. Carolyn Laban is an anthropologist. She began her career saying the same thing. There's no such thing as one truth for all cultures, for all people. But then Carolyn went. Dr. Laban went to some places in Africa where women were horribly mistreated, brutalized, raped, enslaved. And when she saw this, she spoke up to the governments where these brutal practices were happening. She said, you've got to stop this. And do you know what they told her? Oh, in an article she wrote, Chronicle of Higher Education, she said she was told not to impose her Western individualistic views on them. She was told to take her women's rights ball and go home because who was she to impose her truth on their culture? You know what she wrote in an article? She said, you know what? According to her worldview, she said if relativism is correct, relativism is correct, she said they're right. What right do I have to come in and stop an old, what they're doing and uphold women? She said, no, she realized that relativism, if relativism is true, it trumps human rights, trumps justice, trumps women's rights. And so she changed her view and began to argue for a higher truth for all people. See, relativism can't really support women's rights, can't really support human rights or justice because who are we to impose our ideas on someone else? But do you know 
what can support women's rights, justice around the world. Oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is one God with one truth for all people everywhere. You say, well, how, how can you know this for certain? What proof of that is there? Oh, Paul says this. It's the cross. It's the resurrection of Jesus from a dead. He said, look, he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from a dead. And here's what this means. This means that Christianity began not with a, we feel real good about this. Or a, we believe this because it sounds nice. No, Christianity began with a, we saw this. We saw a man die and rise up out of the grave. Paul's saying there's a fact at the heart of Christianity that's undeniable proof that there's one God, one truth for all peoples. Jesus, yes, he really lived. He taught. He really loved. But more than that, he really died and was really raised from a dead. And throughout the book of Acts, Paul, Peter, hundreds of others claimed they saw him with their own eyes. They say, we saw him alive. The empty tomb is the proof that God has given Jesus for the whole world. Now, when Paul gets to this, when he gets to the resurrection, do you know what happens? Well, here's what happens. They cut him off. (laughs) They cut him off. They can't take it anymore. They begin to mock Paul for this. They say, go home and maybe we'll call you later if we want some more of your babbling, as they called it. What did Paul's preaching produce in them? Number four, finally, produced a crisis, a crisis. Something affected them so deeply they couldn't stand to hear him anymore. You know, it's like that saying, if you throw a, throw a rock into a pack of dogs, what happens? It's the one who gets hit, right? That yelps the loudest. And so I want to ask, what kind of rock has Paul thrown into this crowd of now yelping? Athenian philosophers. Well, I don't think it was just the idea of the resurrection, Though that was hard for them to take. I think what they couldn't take in their day, I think the thing they couldn't get down, what they couldn't swallow is the same thing we choke on today. The same thing our culture rejects today. What we can't take is what the resurrection means. And Paul brings it now to the forefront and concludes his message this way. He says, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this. By raising him from a dead. Well, what can they not handle? What's Paul talking about? Here it is. They can't handle the idea of judgment day. Of judgment day. What the New Testament writers called the day. Or the day of the Lord. The day when he will judge the whole world. You and me with justice. Now, I want to add. What is this day? What is the day of the Lord? Well, let's turn the question around and ask, what would it mean for there to be a day of you? Day of Dr. John, you know, Aaron Day, Lillian, what would it mean for there to be a day of you? Well, if you'll pardon the analogy, about a year ago, there was the day of Morgan. It was my 40th birthday. 40th birthday. And for a day, almost all my friends, they sent me uh, text messages, you know, Facebook well wishes. That's what we do now, right, in our modern culture. Facebook messages, text messages. Uh, my friends threw a party for me. Some of them even paid money to a babysitter to come to something for me, you know. So my friends cooked some food. They gave me gifts. Their lives receded. And for a moment, I came to the forefront and center. It was Morgan's day. It was a good day, by the way. I like that day. 
Perhaps a better example, one less self-serving. Uh, consider uh, in, the, in the world of movies or Hollywood or TV, there's a, frequently a production going on, a movie set, and they've got one lead actor or actress in there, and it's not going well, and the scenes aren't coming together. But when they remove that person, when they introduce another lead actor, like in Back to the future. The whole thing comes together. The one who was there is removed. Someone else comes to the center. Now all the scenes fall into place. Now everyone is responding rightly. It's like magic. The whole thing comes together and it becomes obvious that that person should have been in the center all along. Or consider the world of sports. When uh, Perhaps in football, when a quarterback goes down, his backup comes in, it becomes obvious. If the team does well, it should have been that player's team all along. See, what had happened? Oh, that actor, that athlete had his or her day. His time had come and out. Everything was put right. Everyone can see that that person should have been at the center all along. And that is what the day of the Lord is, except on a far more cosmic and grander scale. The day of the Lord shows us the same thing, that the reason that the world isn't right, the reason that people's lives aren't right is because they see themselves, human beings see themselves as the star and center of their own production. What Paul is telling us here is that at the end of time, at the end of days, when Jesus Christ returns, it will become undeniably and blindingly obvious to everyone who has ever lived that Jesus should have been at the center all along. The day of the Lord is when the one who's been in the background of human history comes and takes his rightful place at the center of it all and things are made right. New heavens, the Bible says, a new earth. He'll wipe away every tear. Swords being beaten into plowshares. The wolf lying down with the lamb. Families reunited. People brought together. Why? Things look like they ought to because Jesus Christ's time has come His day has come, and on that day, when his glory and his power and his person are revealed and invade the earth, it will become so obvious. He has been right all along. No one will have it any other way. Every knee will bow, the Bible says. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, his day where he reveals all and brings all to justice will come. And that's what they react to. You say, well, why can't there just be like a, like a creator God somewhere who just makes people and who just accepts everyone no matter what? Well, let me tell you, to me, that's worse than no judge. And let me show you why it's better we have a God who judges. Because to say there's a God who made everything but who won't hold the world accountable means there isn't really a creator. It just means there's a chemist A mad scientist behind it all who just sets everything in motion and allows it all to go with no boundaries or design. Genocide, fine. Rape, fine. Slavery, fine. Doesn't matter. No, that's not a creator. It's a chemist. And I don't want that. Neither do you. See, a creator is someone who pours his heart, her heart, into what they make. A creator cares for their creation. They put limits on it based on its design. See, Paul's holding the Athenians intellectually accountable, and you and me as well. To say there's no judge means there's no creator. And if there's no creator, right, wrong, truth, beauty, love, meaning, all go away. Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian at Yale University, said this in his book. He said, I originally resisted the idea of a wrathful God. 
because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. He concludes this way, if I wanted to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. And he's right. And if the Bible's true, which it is, do you know who God's judgment deserves to fall upon? Well, of course, you and me, us. So who then can be spared? Who can pass? Who can make it through? Oh, look at what Paul says. He says, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? What's the word? Repent. Yeah, it's beautiful. Because Paul doesn't say, as you might expect, you know who God's really going to like and accept? He's going to accept the good people, the moral people, the one who obeyed the laws, you know, the ones who don't just give into that or this. No, he says, no, the ones who make it through aren't the good or the bad. It's the ones who repent. And what it means to repent, hear me, it's going to get a little rocky for a moment. What it means to repent is to turn away from your damnable good works or your damnable liberal justice or your damnable conservative moral values that are just covers for your pride or your anger or for your fear of someone different than you. And you turn to God and you say, oh God, I throw myself on the mercy of your court and in the light of your perfect and all-seeing knowledge, I see my Deeds are worth nothing. See, the only one, this is saying, who makes it through is the one who knows they shouldn't, that they wouldn't, they can't. You say, oh, you say, but that's not fair. Let me tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is a system of merit. A system of merit. See, for the most part, you're here, you got a sense of morality, you think yourself as a good person. It's because you've had the privilege of an authority figure or a community somewhere upholding you, nurturing you, feeding you. You were born in a certain place. But what about those who haven't had that, who are so inherently morally flawed and broken, they just can't pull themselves together by their own spiritual bootstraps? What about them? Should they not make it in? Well, what Paul says, it's not the good who are in, the bad are out. It's the humble who are in, the proud who are out, the ones who admit they don't need a teacher, they don't need a lawgiver, they don't need need a guru or commandment giver. What they need is a savior. Ones who admit God's judgment should fall on them for their crimes against him. And see now, this here is the gospel that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man and came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment in his own body, in his own flesh. And he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we could die to sin and live for righteousness by his stripes and his wounds, we can be healed. And when you place your faith and trust in him that he stood in your place for you, God, what you deserved, Now, the gospel is you get what he deserved. God the Father's approval, his heart, his blessing, salvation, adoption into his family in a forever perfect family. And when he comes through, oh, when he comes again, you and I, this is saying, we can pass through. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask for that same thing to happen in our hearts' lives as well.